Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers podcast, where we talk about the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. We love to talk about how AI and other technologies are affecting marketing while hopefully learning a few new things along the way. This episode, I'm excited to have author John Havens on to talk about an extremely interesting, important topic, I think, uh, the ethics of AI. John is the executive director of the IEEE Global Initiative, and he is a contributor to Mashable, NPR, Forbes, Huffington Post, and The Guardian. He's also the author of a book, which we'll be talking a lot about today, Artificial Intelligence. He's a frequent speaker from the field of artificial intelligence, of course, and he likes to write about leveraging technology and positive psychology to increase human well-being, which is not really uh, a lot of what we hear um, when we talk about AI these days, especially from uh, more of the uh, futurist Elon Musk type, uh, type, type areas. So, so, John, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. Really appreciate you having me on. So, John, I thought the book was great, Artificial Intelligence, Embracing Our Humanity to Maximize Machines, published by uh, Penguin, is available for sale everywhere that books are sold, it seems, uh, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And it's received widespread acclaim by Forbes, Guardian, and uh, a lot of AI pundits. So, you know, it covered a lot, many interesting AI topics. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all those today. But there are a few that I really think uh, would be great for our audience because I just don't think most people are really thinking about uh, what you're covering in the book, um, uh, especially about the um, how close we are to the rise of artificial intelligence as we've thought about it in science fiction uh, affecting our lives, right? So overall, I'd like you to start a little bit about um, what you talk about in your book about how machine learning may soon get to know us better than we know ourselves, can you talk a little bit about the insights your 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 just talk about overall why you why you wrote the book and and where where this is going for you the machine learning that may soon get to know us better than we know ourselves what does that mean sure and, and Jeremy again thank you so much for a having me on the show b the fact that you bought and read the book uh, like you <laughs> my mom my my wife at least half of it no I'm just kidding but I so appreciate because I put so much of my heart into that book, and it means a, a great deal. So thank you, Jeremy. Um, also, just to get – we mentioned this before the show started, but my full title is the uh, uh, Executive Director of the IEEE Global Initiative for Ethics of Autonomous and Intelligent Systems. I'm also the Executive Director of a new program, I can tell you if we have time, called the Council on Extended Intelligence. Some really exciting stuff we're doing with um, – people like Joey Ito and Paul Nemitz and some other great folks. Uh, and I just, cause I always say this, uh, these are my opinions and views on the show. Not, uh, they don't reflect necessarily IEEE or, or the council. Um, that said, you touched on for my book, artificial intelligence, uh, the heart of the book, as it were, um, is this question that still resonates with me. And it was the inspiration for the book, which is how will machines know what we value if we don't know ourselves? Um, and sadly, I love puns. It's an addiction, but, you know, first step and all that. And um, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was raised, um, um, I, I went to college thinking I was going to be a minister. My dad, who passed away in 2011, but he was a psychiatrist. My mom is a minister. I was an actor in New York City, professional actor for about 15 years, and I've been a writer most of my adult life. So I bring that up to say I have had the benefit of being steeped in professions that are all about introspection, uh, acting, writing, you're really studying at all times the human condition. And then with my dad as a psychiatrist, there was a deeper analysis of the human condition, oftentimes when people were in pain or struggling, but a deeper, you know, sort of psyche-oriented question of where mentality meets physiology and then in terms of faith-oriented stuff, although my parents were from a Methodist or Christian tradition, um, they've always been very open and supported my search to what I will call a faith-based 
or, or uh, even beyond faith, sort of uh, values-based views of the world. So beyond just Judeo or Christian ideals or, or, or um, uh, backgrounds, uh, then certainly things like Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam, and uh, agnosticism and atheism, and then kind of economics, which is its own uh, religion in one sense. So all that to say, big answer to your first question, the real fascination for the book came from two places. One is this real, you know, kind of the core of who I am is about introspection. And then the other, I, I can tell you more about this if you'd like, really kind of stems from a core uh, fear. <laughs> but those are the, the two main things. Yeah, great, great. Now, let's, I, I, I want to talk actually about the introspection piece because I thought that was really interesting. You know, you, you, you talk about the risk of artificial intelligence removing our desire for introspection. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because I thought that that was, that was striking to me. Uh, I have never really thought of the AI consequences that way. And, and, and then, you know, I like to get into the sort of the consumer consumption uh, side of that because that's really what cognitive is focusing on now with its, its deep learning technology. So talk about like, what do you mean by AI removing our desire for introspection? Sure. No, it's a great question. Um, I think the easiest analogy I tend to give is GPS with our cars. Um, although some people are still into maps, I don't know many people who lament paper maps. Like, maps are gone. <laughs> Humanity is over. I don't. You know, I remember them. I'm 49, so I certainly can think of uh, arguments I'd have with my wife or friends and, and really stemming from just like, we took the wrong turn on 95 and um, and oftentimes that conversation will be the sense of like loss of serendipity. You know, when you had a map and you took a wrong turn, you might discover a restaurant that then becomes the favorite restaurant that you and your wife ever went to. And you found it because there was a quote mistake, but GPS, the, um, you know, the uh, metaphor or analogy, whatever I was confused to is, you know, driving us literally in our vehicles, or if you do walks, you can walk with walking directions. And more and more for myself, I'm sure other people are like this, you, you give over the sort of mental acuity about maps because you don't need to deal with it anymore. So you're like, I get in my car, I set the thing, I make sure like it's going the right way. Maybe I have six apps to choose from. I use Google, I use Waze, whatever. Boom, you start driving. And there's these different, you know, things from research where you'll see like people just start taking turns because their GPS tells them to even though they physically see a sign that says like construction ahead or, you know, and you, so like you trust the technology cause you get used to it. And in one sense you, um, you know, it's not like people necessarily would get out of the car and be like, am I in Denver? Like they'll still probably know how to use a map, but more and more the, the question is maybe not meaning, you know, I, I used a map. I know how to find myself around a map, but my kids who are younger, like high school age, I don't know if they know how to use a map. And so that's just one example of one technology that very quickly has somewhat become ubiquitous, at least say in the West or where people have access to it. And then when you think about something like effective computing with emotions, um, you know, to me, it's, it, there's a lot of apples and oranges. Yes. But meaning what I'm saying for maps is different than say emotion based AI. But the point is, is that very quickly you could get used to whatever home companion robot, speaking to you and through anthropomorphism very quickly you start to you know it's not a person but you may very quickly start associating it to such a degree as an entity that you may give more time to that device than you might to the humans in your lives and by the way that's not my choice to make and i'm not trying to be pejorative about that choice my point is it has to be something in my opinion this is what the book is about as you know it should be something where you say okay hold on you know, I realize that as a human, it's very easy to kind of fall in love with, in one sense, this device. And it's built to recognize my emotion so that when I speak to it, it can potentially help me. But there is also the, the possibility that I could maybe kind of get more used to this device than being out with humans. And at least as of right now today, the field of positive psychology that I spend a lot of time in, there is the physiological pheromonal-based need for humans to be around humans. It doesn't mean that they can't be around machines, but at least until things sort of change in a big, big way, how we interact with each other is really about the core of 
what our well-being is about. So this introspection and this this temptation to sort of uh, let different kind of devices or or technologies usurp aspects of who we are is very strong. And most of my work is about saying to friends with hopefully not being too annoying, is that thing there, that one thing that you may give over, are you going to give it over fully? Or is it something you really want to ask yourself, do I want to give this over and how? Interesting. So, so to play devil's advocate, I mean, how much of this is technology changing the way we interact with each other versus AI uh, changing the way we interact with each other? And, you know, there's no, there's no debating that the, the technology has created extremely rapid change relative to decades before. Uh, so, for instance, like, isn't it more nostalgia about the map example? Or let's say, you know, uh, that movie Hidden Figures came out recently about the, the, the women, not just the women, but the uh, black African-American women working as calculators, they were called. They were human calculators. Uh, in NASA, and people were thinking, wow, there are actually people that were doing addition and, and all these things in, in uh, uh, math. Uh, now we have computers to do that. And not only do we have computers, but when VisiCalc and Excel came out, they displaced a large number of human calculators, accounting, uh, uh, of people, et cetera. Uh, it's hard to say that that has been a net negative for um, humanity and humanity's well-being. Uh, is, you know, how, how, do you, how do you differentiate between the artificial intelligence uh, creating this human connection problem versus technology like, you know, Tinder and text messaging. And th- those aren't AI, but those are technology that definitely are disconnecting humans these days. Yeah. Uh, another great question in the sense of I'm not interested in demonizing AI or any technology because uh, uh, the phrase I like to use, and I, if I'm quoting someone, hopefully I, I can remember who it was, but while technology is neither good nor evil, it's also not inert, which I liked. I used to just say when I spoke, technology is neither good nor evil. It's like a stick. You can either build a house with it or beat someone with it. But I like the idea that it's not inert because there's very little technology kind of like once it's in our presence that we may just kind of like sit and not kind of play around with because that, at least for me, I'm a geek. Um, I think um, – you know, mostly, you know, autonomous and intelligent systems by definition, and I, I put those buckets, that's how we tend to talk about stuff at IEEE and with the council. We don't really like the term artificial intelligence, um, not the technology, the term. The term, as you would know, and the work you do, especially with, you know, IBM and all that, like there's cognitive computing, there's machine learning, there's deep learning. So first of all, AI is, is a very broad kind of, um, not outdated term, but because it was, you know, came around yeah, 40s or 50s and Turing, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just like confusing. It's like saying the web. Like confusing. Yeah, it's just too yeah. broad. It's like saying the internet. It's like I work on the right, internet. Exactly. If you say that now, people are like, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? And the other thing is, we talk more about this later. The actual phrase tends to sometimes bring up these kind of us versus them. You mentioned Elon Musk. You know, uh, sort of the, the 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 machines versus humans debate, which is something we're not interested in. Meaning. Not not versus, I should say, machines against humans debate. It's not that we're not interested in it, but it tends to be about um, sensationalism or it also tends to be a narrative that if we don't say, hold on a second, that narrative hurts the technology and the humans, period, then it will just continue. And so I like saying autonomous and intelligent technologies. But I bring that up to say the difference, because to your point, the UI of addictive stuff and I used to work in PR so I certainly understand things like behavioral you know psychology and how it's you know built to be addictive and all that but um autonomy by definition is is taking something over right it's replicating a skill or it's replicating something that's the nature of the word autonomous and we've been used to autonomous technology for years like in our cars at cruise control right no one's like oh my gosh I I'm not going to be able to put my foot in the accelerator anymore. Like I'm lamenting the loss of humanity. It's like, no, it's, but it's an aggregate, right? Like autonomous and intelligent technology. And there's no, when we can talk about economics in a minute, um, or I'll just mention something now, which is 
there's no incentive to not automate or, or provide intelligent systems or algorithms to anything. Meaning there's no business incentive where someone's going to be like, you know what? I am concerned. Maybe, or hold on. Maybe it's up like genomic testing and autonomous weapons, but beyond those two things, there's no one that's like saying, you know what? I am concerned about human autonomy and, and, or parenting. <laughs> and like, maybe we shouldn't have a certain level of effective technology in front of kids or whatever else. We're kind of getting to that point, not because, I want to be clear, you know, IBM, Google, whoever, like I'm not interested in, in any way making any company, you know, whatever. It's not, not about any negativity towards companies. It's about us. And this is kind of to your question, I think, which is we as people are so stoked. I am. I'm a geek. You bring like one device in your house. And you're like, that is awesome. But the example I'll give uh, um, which is another kind of usurpation, which is something that I'm, as a parent, very keenly aware of. And the show, the TV show Humans, uh, which people don't know as much about, like I watch all of them, Westworld and Black Mirror and all of them, but Humans in the first season, there was a um, companion robot. Of course, they're all gorgeous. Although they did have one older woman who was heavyset, which I loved. I'm like, thank you. Thank you very much. In the future, morphology, maybe there'll be some robots that actually look like people. Anyway, but... um, there's a scene where the, 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 the companion robot who's a young woman, I mean, she looks like a young woman, um, is taking care of a, a young girl who's about six. And the mother, the actual human mother of the girl is an alcoholic. And she spends many nights away from the family. And the mother comes home one night and says to the little girl, let's go upstairs and read a story. And the girl points to the android and says, no, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want Barbara to read to me. That moment as a parent, scared me more than any like 10, you know, terminator <laughs> whatever movies. Cause I thought this is where that woman, she's not evil. She didn't kill anybody. She's broken and suffering like we all are. And she's struggling with alcoholism, which is the disease. And she came home and the, the girl didn't do anything wrong. The, the technology didn't do anything wrong. Right. The girl would have been alone and all that. But I saw in that moment, this sense of, like now there's so many devices and homes that may be replicating, like say aspects of parenting where the same way the GPS has taken, you know, whatever kind of out of the human um, uh, story of, of maps and all that. If something like parenting starts to get done where, where sometimes people may say I need help and that's one thing, but where there's things like you can't get back. This is where I don't mean to sound all hand ringy, but more in the sense of like, I, I am a committed dad. Like if you are going to have kids and you want to raise your kids, and of course these machines can be incredibly helpful, these systems to help increase well-being. But if we're at the point where society, someone might say, cool, you know, by the time I line up these 10 different devices, this can feed my child, this can bring them to school, this can take care of this data thing, this can do this, this is the emotion, this is this then there's also this core sense of like, well, what is left for you and for us? And, and at least for me, maybe because I'm older, I'm 49, I live in the West, whatever. I don't want parenting or humanity in terms of that kind of parenting thing to be automated. I just don't. Um, there's a flag in the ground. Aspects of it can be. But where especially, it's not just about automating parts of parenting. It's where someone might wake up one day and be like, wait a second, my child does prefer all these devices and all these things, and I can get mad at them. I can take the devices away, but my child loves those devices more than me, and if I want to be honest, I will have to let them love what they want. And, again, if it's their choice and it's their family's choice, good on you. I'm not going to get in the mix. But if they wake up and that has just happened to them, I do think that will be terribly, terribly sad. Yeah, so we, we do – there's a lot of discussion in your book about this, uh, this um, potential of loss. Uh, and I want to get into a little later that sort of the, uh, you know, the autonomous workforce and the economic issues around that. But like one thing that I don't see a lot of, and maybe it's because we, none of us do um, is an answer to this question of how do you stop that from happening? Right. How do we how do how do we live with technology and use it better 
in a way that it's not going to replace us in the most important human-centric ways. Uh, and don't you think that some countries and some societies will will adopt it uh, more strictly and, and others will will look to limit it, et cetera? Yeah, again, these are fantastic questions. And I realize my answers are kind of long, so I'll try to make them shorter if I'm getting too long. Yeah. But, I mean, if you go to, like, to Japan, uh, there's a tradition uh, called animism, which is, um, or faith, whatever the best term is, but that objects can have a sacredness to them that for Americans uh, or certain Westerners is, is kind of foreign. So, like, for instance, there's a thing called the broken needle ceremony, that apparently is an annual event in Japan that I think it's largely women will celebrate the needles that they've broken in repairing clothes in their, in their house. And they actually will have um, a ceremony honoring these objects. And uh, I think sometimes Americans are like, well, that seems, that's kind of weird versus, you know, maybe guys love their cars so much. I, I play blues guitar. My guitar is very sacred to me. I kind of get it. So anyway, you brought up the point about cultural values are definitively going to determine a lot of um, in legislation about this stuff. Um, the thing that I talk about a lot, and it, it is going to get into economics, but it's a philosophy which a lot of people don't think about this. And it's hard to talk about without sounding political, uh, which is never my interest. But um, uh, the GDP, which was um, a formula created by this guy, Simon Kuznets, in the Second World War to help FDR, FDR said, look, we're going to war. I essentially have to run two economies, America at home and America at war. And really there was a statistical numbers need, and this guy Kuznets came up with this formula, um, which formed the basis of what we now know as the GDP. It wasn't the final version. But he at the time, Kuznets said, do not let this become a metric for prosperity. It's about counting stuff. It's about understanding how much of whatever we need to get something accomplished, but a very limited, finite aspect of especially growth. And then what happened is the war got won, and there was this sense of like, wow, economists in one sense are kind of heroes. They helped fight the war in a very real sense. But there was this thing called the, um, the Bretton Woods Conference in the late 1940s in the States where the World Bank was formed, the U.S. dollar was made a central currency. And you may be saying like, John, why are you talking about all this stuff with regards to AI? It's because fundamentally at that point of, of time, a value, meaning a philosophy, meaning a need for humans at that point, which cannot be understated, was growth. The world was in ruins physically. You know, the infrastructure, gone. Certainly people's hearts. It was devastation, the Second World War. However many millions of people were dead. So this idea of exponential growth, not just profit, right? Profit means give someone something they can use, make money, of course, pay your bills, done. Exponential growth is, you know, a 10%, a 50%, a 70%, a 90% increase in profit where a shareholder model, um, which is, you know, people are investing money, all of it, great, right? I get it. But the, the, the key performance indicator in an exponential growth model is exponential growth. I bring this up to say now we come to autonomous technology and at a time where we're talking about jobs. Um, there's a great book called Rise of the Robots. I often will attribute this, my ideology about this, to Martin Ford, who wrote Rise of the Robots. Um, there's no business imperative that I still have been introduced to. There's a business imperative to not automate every human out of a job ever, period, if it means you can increase exponential growth, period. Like, you know, when I tell people this and sometimes they get upset, I'm like, I'm not trying to say anything negative about a business, but you put someone in a room and say it's the end of the quarter and the imperative by law is for you to increase the growth exponentially. And then you hand them a technology that can increase productivity 40, 50, 60, 70% and you get to fire the humans who are a cost, you know, <laughs> drain on cost with health insurance and all that, all, whatever. I, I sound maybe horrible saying it, but I'm like, let's just be realistic and let's just say what's true. And then I have a lot of friends who say, well, it's machines working with humans. You know, humans are much more emotional in these things. I'm not disagreeing with it, but these are temporal uh, band-aids and fixes where we're going to say in the same GDP-driven system, 
that humans and machines will work together. Again, I go back to Martin Ford. Machines will work with humans until the machines can see what the humans are doing, replicate what they're doing, and, and replace their job, period. There is no business imperative to keep humans working. And I bring this up to say what needs to change. It doesn't seem like maybe the right answer to your question, but I think it is, is what is the primary metric of value for human prosperity? It is not, in my opinion, and people like Joseph Stiglitz, The Economist, and many others around the world, exponential growth. Because exponential growth is why, amongst all the great things happening with technology in the world, um, but we are still dealing with an environment that is in such degradation that the population of the planet won't survive maybe beyond the next 50 or 60 years. And also things like why suicide and depression are at rates that we've never seen before in every realm of the world, not just, you know, uh, uh, developing economies, but the West and, and, and developed economies. The number one cause of death for men my age, so the number two cause, number one, I think is coronary heart disease, but the number two cause of death in Japan and the States for the most developed countries in the world, according to the World Health Organization, is suicide. With all this other great stuff happening, the questions I keep coming back to and I keep telling people is, if we have exponential growth, and we will not just put a line in the sand and say, GDP may have worked uh, in 1944, it doesn't work now. It is killing us. That is the biggest thing we need to change, because then well-being can be increased in sort of a triple bottom line uh, fashion. Uh, so I agree with you about the the inevitability, it seems, during, with the current structure of our society, especially in the United States, that uh, m- many jobs will be automated, especially low-wage, uh, repetitive jobs. Uh, robotic automation with the vision technology of deep learning, et cetera, now is able to copy or be programmed to copy human interaction of making a hamburger from all the little drawers of McDonald's or driving a truck uh, across the country, delivering things with drones. You know, those things are going to displace a lot of people very quickly. Is your belief, though, that let's say we got rid of the GDP, is, is your belief that we need to change our societal structure of, and, and put value in a different place? And in doing so, we will not automate away these repetitive jobs? Well, uh, I don't see, uh, you know, like it was about four or five years ago, because I'm a writer, amongst other things, obviously. And um, there's some really amazing programs that now, four years ago, uh, I forget the name, it's in my book, but I forget the name of the company I interviewed, but they were already creating programs that could write, say, like annual corporate reports, uh, air quote, as good as a human, meaning corporate reports are not necessarily written to be like the latest John Grisham <laughs> thriller, right? And But the point is, is that a human could read something written by, uh, machine learning AI back then, four years ago, and the human one, they couldn't tell them apart, right? Turing test beat. Now, right. there's poetry, there's novels, and this is about taste, right? Probably, in general, most people would be like, I still like the human thing, and they're probably going to, you know, but this is, this is minutes, this is days, this is, uh, you and me are going to read a headline, you know, novel, and by the way, some novels have been starting to win uh, some contests with, uh, written by, with, with AI. So my point there is that, like, it is a losing battle for us to, to talk about. I'm happy to do it. And, and again, I'm not saying it wasn't a good question. But the point is, it's a losing battle to say, X job will never be done by humans. Because again, someone is building it to try to replicate that part of who we are as humans. There's emotion AI is an entire new industry. There's, you know, emotional intelligence. There's all this stuff where can we look, can we find the things where it's going to take longer for um, robots or, uh, you know, the physical manifestation of AI or systems to do certain things? Sure. But I wrote my book about this. There's something called the left-hand turn problem with autonomous cars, where going to the right is actually quite simple. Like as a driver, you would know this, meaning you're in your car, you want to take a right-hand turn, you kind of look at two spots and you go. Left-hand turn, there's like many, many more things you have to look at so you don't hit a person or whatever. And that left-hand turn problem, apparently, for autonomous vehicles was something even like five years ago, six years ago, people like at Google, at Uber, whatever, were working on autonomous systems. Were like, we're never going to solve this, never going to solve it. The leading minds in autonomous vehicles said five or six years ago, the left-hand turn problem, never going to happen. And guess what? It, it was. And so when people, for me, I just am like logic-oriented. 
when I read, like, as far as I know, these are the leading people in the world making autonomous cars saying this will never happen, and then it does, and they're surprised. I don't understand then, or, you know, um, uh, DeepMind, you know, with, uh, when Go got beat. Like, it's like when, when they get surprised in one sense, and by the way, I don't mean it in a bad way, there's a delight, too. Like, I'm a musician and an artist. Like, I get, like, you create something where it wasn't there before. It's like, wow. But, I mean, why we, we think that certain things won't be automated. I'm not, I'm not there anymore. My assumption is it will. So it's not but, just, you know, quote, but, but isn't it more, yeah, but isn't it, sorry to interrupt, but isn't it more a question yeah. of we can do this, but should we do this? It's just like I have a gun so I can yes. kill somebody, but I won't do it. So, so is society going to uh, regulate and from a law legal perspective, make it illegal to automate these jobs away because uh, these people will lose their jobs, become depressed. Uh, we will never find jobs for them. We can't afford to pay them a living wage to do nothing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or do you think it is inevitable that we automate ourselves into a societal uh, oblivion that will uh, be sort of apocalyptic in a lot of ways, Great Depression times three, and then we will eventually figure it all out and, and create a better society from that. Well, I think we're in B. We are already automating ourselves. I don't think um, – I want to be an optimist, but what, what we are doing now is the automation thing. We're creating a better society. That has to happen now. And the thing is, what I'm thinking about is whether it's like right now today, tax incentives or something um, is trying to make people aware that the shareholder model, which works, um, and there's tons of research on this. It's not just, you know, like sustainability or green types. And Joseph Stiglitz, who's done some great work for the World Economic Forum on this, points out like when you read the reports about how AI will help GDP by like 2030, it's extraordinary. It's like, you know, the GDP will go up by you know, 30% trillion dollars just for AI. But then when you read Stiglitz and other economists, they say, but the benefit of that GDP increase will go to a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller portion of humans on the planet. Now, that means 5, 6, 7%, and these are figures you know, of course, of the people on the planet own like 100% of the wealth. As far as I can tell, these things are just facts. Like I say them and I'm like, am I socialist or like a lefty or am I political? I'm not trying to be, but I want to be a realist and say, look, if, you know, and again, I'm not picking on big organizations, even if it sounds like I am, I'm trying to answer your question about what society needs to do to change. First of all is to say, let's talk reality. If a certain size organization, whoever they are, can avoid taxes by doing a tax, you know, an offshore tax shelter or whatever, that's not illegal nothing illegal about it, right? There's nothing evil or illegal about it. Does it mean it increases well, human well-being? Of course not. Not at all. It increases a very small portion of a very small amount of certain people in a certain part of, you know, largely American, different parts of Europe and all that. And, and, and this is where, like, I'm just not interested in, 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 in protecting, not the people, because they earned it. They're cool. I get that. But protecting the ideal of this sense of like, well, we, we have to stick with this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? GDP was galvanized in the 1940s. It's 2018. And so the solution, the simple version of it is triple bottom line. The business version of it that most people I love is Michael Porter wrote this seminal Harvard Business Review article in 2011 about it's like the basis of social innovation um, and I'm going to blank on the title of the article, but the basic idea is he gave this example of a Costa Rican coffee company, and it wasn't Starbucks, but it was something like that, where the company realized uh, that their profits were dropping. And they went to Costa Rica where the farmers were making the coffee, and they realized the farmers were living in squalor, like in huts, and they couldn't feed their kids. They didn't have medical insurance. And so what the company did, here's a shocking idea. They said, let's increase their living conditions. Let's make sure that their colleagues Let's give them a life that they can be proud of. And they did. Profits went up, right? The initial decision to do that is not based in GDP. It's not based in exponential growth because short-term gains fall. Short-term gains there were we're going to lose money for the next maybe three quarters. But someone said on the spreadsheet, but hold on. 
if we make these people actually engage in our business and they believe in the brand and they, they love their lives, our company will flourish in the long run. And guess what? They were right. His article in 2011 established this sense of triple bottom line, which is people, planet, and profit, where so many organizations around the world, and it's kind of the formation of the B Corp movement, realized, hold on. And again, GDP, it's not evil. Like that's a silly, if I've said that or inferred that, there's a term called beyond GDP, which simply means like, cool, GDP is one number, one set of numbers, one set of indicators about growth. Great. We all agree on it. Cool. But it's like if I said to you, right, all you are worth is your money and all you are worth is, you know, this one kind of one tiny specter versus the quality of the show, the quality of your guests who you are as a person, the friends that you touch, all of these other aspects of your life. I might sound squishy or emotional, but my point is, is I know you aren't just about your money or worth, but we seem, especially in America, especially in the West, we seem like this iron grip on this ideal of thinking that our worth is only fiscal or about growth. And someday when I get to be X, then I will be whatever. Well, my message is today you have worth now. And the triple bottom line mentality is I have to protect the planet, not just to be a good dude or to be greenwashing or whatever else. It's how my kids will live when I die. <laughs> they need water. And then the, 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 the profit is fine. That's what we're already doing. But then the people side is where this, this pandemic, according to the World Health Organization, it's not fun to talk about. It doesn't take away from my hand-wringing sounding narrative sometimes, but I don't care. When you look at the numbers and see depression and suicide on the rise, if you're in a system, a monetary exponential growth system, where one key indicator is more and more people are removing themselves, unless you're like Darwinian and say, well, look, that's great news because the more people that remove themselves, you know, there's an overpopulation, that's morbid. Triple bottom line is what society needs to do now. And then the autonomous and intelligent technologies then their key performance indicator won't be, are you increasing the bottom line of just this one thing, just the fiscal stuff? It will be, hold on a second, that technology you're making is beautiful, but you're now focusing mainly on kind of the monetary stuff. What about the planet? You know, maybe the resources that it will, you know, to, to exponentially grow from a financial standpoint, you're going to maybe, you know, guzzle so many kind of, uh, you know, the green gas emissions are going to be so extreme you're going to hurt the resources around you. It's a sustainability question, going back to Michael Porter. It means your company won't last this long. But if the ideology, if the fundamental underpinnings of GDP, if the sense of we have to have exponential growth first and foremost does not change, that is what will destroy humanity. It is not the technology. Great. Interesting. So one more topic uh, before we finish up. You, in a number of areas of the book, you talk about advertising and all of the data that's being collected on, on consumers. Uh, that is, to be clear, that's what Cognitive does. That's what we help IBM Watson do. Uh, we use the digital signal out there, uh, all of the different things that we're allowed to use right now, location data, uh, web usage, advertising exposures, app, uh, app usage, things like that. And we try to recognize patterns in all that data that, that compare people to each other, okay? And then we use historical data of who is buying things, who is uh, signing up for test drives, who is doing these things. We're using deep learning, which is uh, uh, infant you know, uh, uh, idea compared to the emotional AI that we're talking about right now, but the power of deep learning to predict uh, outcomes and to generalize, to find and, and, and help marketers be more efficient with their spend, okay? So we're using this type of AI, this deep learning, this machine learning, to help marketers be more efficient. But in your book, you talk a lot about advertising uh, being, I have the, uh, the quote here, um, uh, that creating 
all of this data and all of this capability is now creating what you say, quote unquote, the hidden future of manipulation based targeting. I thought this was a very interesting take on uh, personalized advertising. We're definitely doing that. Talk a little bit about depression and pornography and feeding addictions and things like that. But I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit more about how you feel all this targeting can end up being very manipulative? Because our view is that we're basically finding people who should already have a proclivity uh, towards a product uh, versus a manipulation of them um, wanting to buy a product that they shouldn't have wanted to buy before. Yeah, again, it's a great question. And I think um, it's a, it's a paradigm level question because like I used to work in PR and uh, your audience will understand this and, and I'm not an expert in advertising in terms of like CPMs, but I remember when I got into PR, I didn't know anything about CPMs, but clients like Facebook and PNG and all that, when Facebook would change their algorithm, I was like, I would talk to my friends in advertising and be like, am I right that the CPMs just keep going down? Meaning Gillette or whoever was a client, I'm like, we keep paying more, but there's less sort of bang for the buck. And the, my friend's answer was, yeah, well, that's kind of how it goes. And the CPMs just kept going down. Now, maybe that's changed. So, and that's fine. And by the way, I'm not, that's just one indicator. And again, not being an expert in advertising like you are, this may not be the best indicator. But what I realized was, as I was like, okay, advertising, it's so much more challenging to reach uh, an end user in the current internet economy. And this was like eight years ago when I was in PR. Now I would assume a lot of that has gotten a lot harder because there's certain what I'll call pipes. And this is not to be negative to the pipes, but like, you know, those who kind of control the highways of information, if they make changes to algorithms or fees, then, and one is like a CPG or something organ, or, or oriented company, you got to do what you got to do, right? You got to get in front of people. But the system, which is not about advertisers, um, uh, in general, or at least it's not about I meaning the advertising industry as it were. Um, there's a great book. If, if you or your listeners haven't read it, I would highly recommend it called The Intention, I-N, Intention Economy by Doc Searles, where he talks about, you probably know this, instead of CRM, Customer Relationship Management, he talks about VRM, Vendor Relationship Management. We're at the point with technology, whether it's blockchain or sovereign identity or zero-knowledge proofs, where individuals essentially can have a data bank tied to their identity, where when they kind of raise their hand and say all the stuff that advertisers are so excellent at in terms of what you just said, knowing people's, you know, measuring sentiment and all that type of stuff. Um, one big thing to remember is that right now, all the tools that advertisers and brands have in general, there's an outside in sort of tracking mentality for all of us. Right. And I knew this in PR, you know, this in advertising, right. This not an irony, but anyone who's in the advertising industry is still being advertised too, right? So we all are in the same uh, society in terms of how we're uh, targeted or what have you. But more and more, people don't understand how these algorithms, in isolation, one or two of them, for like what you just said, the targeting and whatever else, I only like certain types of movies on you know, Netflix, so I don't like horror or Amazon or whatever. So I don't mind not seeing movies about horror. But, you know, the idea of uh, Eli Parizier popularized in the filter bubble is there's this point where, like, we may start to, and this has nothing to do with advertising, this per se, it's how we click and how the kind of UI of how we click, we start to manufacture who we become, and we've lost sort of a sense of challenge, like, because maybe I only like to hear from Democrats versus Republicans. Well, that doesn't help me grow as a person. So I bring all this up to say advertising to me is not the issue, meaning someone who's got a good product and it brings value and they want to put it in front of someone. That's, that's the age old sort of commerce idea of, you know, I got to buy food, I got to buy clothes and I have brands that I like. But the issue is that in, in the midst of that kind of uh, relationship, there's less and less need sometimes to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship from my estimation, again, I'm speaking to an expert here um, in the current environment, especially with IBM. I'm not worthy. I'm doing my Wayne's world there. Um, is, is when you don't need to know, when you don't actually have to necessarily talk to someone, as it were, or connect with them on a very one-to-one -one basis 
to know everything about them with regards to certain aspects of who they are. This is where in the book I talk a lot about if algorithms can know us better than if we know ourselves. Now, I want to be clear, that isn't necessarily bad. I don't remember what I ate four weeks ago. I don't remember what I, you know, bought last week. The, the, the aggregated information that advertisers have access to about that, that's what leads to these amazing insights about who we are. Now, however, the, the ability for me to access that data, at least in the States, I just came back from a big meeting, a wonderful conference called the My Data Conference in Finland or in Estonia, where people can actually either own their data or access it. Then the logic is there's parity, meaning individuals can have access to data where they can start to have the ability to formulate insights about different aspects of their behavior in the same way the advertising industry can. This whole ramble is meant to say what advertisers can do, and I've talked to friends, and I still have a lot of friends very high up and like a lot of the big holding companies, um, you know, uh, uh, different advertising firms. Advertisers have this once-in-a-human-lifetime opportunity to begin to change the narrative in the industry about the value of data, but telling the individuals how precious their data is versus it's not the advertising industry I'm about to talk about now. This is the Internet economy where we've ended up. Because we've sort of been trained, or not sort of, because we have been trained to click the consent buttons on terms and conditions, even with GDPR, what that means is we, we are giving up over and over and over. We just give up our data, give up our data. That data to me, it's aggregate. It is our life. Advertisers know this. Advertisers know when people share their data, the insights about that data, how it can not just, you know, be incentive about what they might want to buy. It tells them precious aspects about who they are. Well, this is introspection writ large, but introspection about someone else. If advertisers say, hold on a second, those CPMs that are going down, the writing that is very much on the wall, uh, a lot of what I'm not interested anymore in protecting is second or third-party data brokers where through uh, certain types of um, lobbying or whatever else, individuals are kept from even accessing their data, not owning it, accessing it, especially when it comes to things like medical data. It was only four years ago that HIPAA let Americans have access to, the, to their data. That's life and death, and I, I'm done. I don't care. If I sound anti-whatever, I'm not in business, but I'm pro letting someone have access to their child's data that might be the, the, the core reason that they die from something like cancer is because one doctor gives them a fax in 2018 or a piece of paper because HIPAA or someone else has regulations or there's a business reason. They can't give a portable copy of that child's data to a parent so they can then email it over to a different specialist and through the, you know, 20 people they're trying to interact with to make sure their child gets the best health care, the child dies because those, those files, the, the, that data can't get to the right hands. I'm done. I don't care. Like, this is for me, yeah, flag in the ground. I hope no one's offended, certainly you or IBM, because the, the work that Watson had said is fantastic. But the, the sort of underpinnings, the paradigms of how this stuff was built, it is, needs to change. And individuals, when they have access to their data, this builds up relationships and advertisers. I told my friend this. He loved this idea. I named the agency, but, you know, I don't want to name the agency. So I said, look, advertisers now hang out a shingle, hang out a shingle. And in the same way that when, a, when someone has a child, a financial advisor says, well, get that child a 401K. Well, now every advertiser, you're the perfect people to go to individuals, your friends, your mom, all the people who are used to saying, things that are going to kill humanity, privacy is dead and all this stuff, in the sense of saying, hold on a second, nope, your data is precious. And let me tell you, I know because I'm in the advertising industry, how your sentiment, what it means about you. Set up a data vault, set up, you know, PIMS, what's called personal information management system. Go to S-O-V-R-A-N, sovereign.org or Miko.me or any of these great organizations that let an individual start to recognize their data is the precious lifeblood of their identity and who they are. And then advertisers can start to make money. I would love to pay an advertiser to say, hold on a second, I need financial advisor, advisory. That's why I'm paying Bob over there. He's helping me with my taxes and my financial advice. I need help. I will pay an advertiser or, or for a service to help me organize aspects of my data so that not only is it tracked from the outside in, I can now set up this data vault, do the VRM thing, like I mentioned with Doc Searles, and I can tell people who I am from the inside out. Then there's this marriage. There's this parity. 
where instead of right now where we are sliding into data as a commodity, doesn't make money sustainable, sustainable wise for business and advertising. And it certainly means that humans more and more get used to giving away their data. And today it's maps and tomorrow it's parenting. And, and pretty soon we're just this sludge of this grayish non-committal anything. There won't be anything for brands to track. What do you want to buy? Click a button. I can make you buy anything I want. The manipulation isn't really the point because manipulation is obviously a very loaded uh, word, but I use that to say that like humans are very easy to manipulate and you need that buffer. You need this data bank or whatever, whatever we want to call it, where someone can say, okay, hold on a second. I'm being tracked and I'm getting this information about what I want to buy. Cool. But I'm also going to give unique information. This is who I am. And then more and more we can start to have peer-to-peer, one-time data interactions. And that's when brands are going to be thrilled because cost of acquisition, tracking costs are going to go way down because you won't have to track me through whatever, you know, Facebook or whatever else. Not that anything wrong with doing that, but you can just so say directly to me in an algorithmic way, hey, John, you like my brand? My answer, yes. Cool. We're, we're selling whatever. Cool. Great. Well, do you want to buy the stuff? Yes. What do you think about these things? And I tell you, but then it's a one-time transaction. I don't need to give you all of my data, not you, but I don't need to give any organization all of my data for all time. But those trusted interactions are what is going to bring advertising back <laughs> from not being this sometimes, you know, people are confused and angry because they don't have access to their data. It's a one-way relationship, and that's where advertising can, can stem that tide. They are the industry that can make that happen. So I'm, I'm excited. You know, I know we're wrapping up, and my answers have been long, so thank you for indulging. But this is where especially someone like IBM, are you kidding me? Like, come on. It's brilliant, the work that's being done with medical stuff and whatever else. But people have to be prioritized. They have to be reminded and told that data, privacy, all those things are not dead. Data is who they are. And once they honor it and protect it, that's when brands like IBM will earn the trust where they'll get the profits they deserve. But more importantly, they will sustain all of humanity and increase well-being. And that's, that's my appeal to the advertising industry. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting appeal. I think GDPR in Europe is uh, trying to take steps towards that. We'll see how that uh, goes. Um, unfortunately, we have a lot more that we could talk about on all these topics, but we're out of time. So I just want to thank you again, John Havens, for uh, being on the program, talking about your book and, uh, and uh, these, these uh, interesting uh, aspects of the AI future that is much, much closer than we, I think, all think. And I want to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in to another Hidden Layers podcast. We will uh, talk to you all soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you.